Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and the creative editor there. And we are a carbon removal marketplace based in Seattle. Did I already say that, Siobhan? Did I say that twice? Nope. This is the first time. You're <laughs> alerting our listeners. That's Siobhan Montoya-Lavender from Thanks a Ton and Nori's Mean Crew. Hey, Shiv. Hey, everybody. <laughs> All right. Apologies to our wonderful guest, Sampo Tukiainen, who's calling in with us from Finland today. And he is the CEO of CFIX, and he's going to be talking to us today about first-generation and second-generation direct air capture, which is a topic I want to sink my teeth into because I think I might be stuck in first-gen, and I might be stuck with all the preconceived notions I have about first-gen DAC and what it means and what it's going to look like. And so I'm excited to hear about what the future is going to look like. Let's let's be forward-facing here. I don't want to... But even before we start that, Sampa, oh, sorry, I want to poke at that because do people even like that? I imagine if you're a quote unquote first gen DAC supplier, you're probably like, because it's yeah. inherently pejorative, right? It's framing them as the old way, the old guard, they're out of touch. They're doing technology that's inappropriately scaled. So is this even a model that you like using? Or I guess if you're second gen, you probably do like it. Well, you know, I'm you know, always have to have some edge, you know, to, to, you know, get people, get people, you know, out, oh, okay. out on the, on the fences, but, uh, uh, it's not about that. And obviously the whole space and the whole industry is so young and it's moving so fast that people are not, not like ready for second generation at this You're going to hate the third gen when they come and they, and they leapfrog you, you're going to be shaking your yeah. fist off my lawn, you know, and we haven't really, it really even, you know, seen what the first gen can do. So, so, you know, but, <laughs> But um, you know, I guess it's just a, it's a marketing term. But but also, you know, it's a it's a real term in the sense that uh, I think second generation is often when you know you've come across. Uh, I mean, you've solved and come you know uh, kind of gotten around some of the you know early stage and first generation problems. And um, and yeah, I think we have. I think we have, and um, in a lot of areas. So so I think it's justified. You know, it's. I think our listeners are pretty familiar with the term direct air capture, but just briefly summarize, what does it mean to be a direct air capture method? What does that entail? Well, direct air capture means that you are um, removing CO2 or capturing it from ambient air, which is, uh, you know, like we know, it's a kind of a dilute dilute solution or, or a mix, mixture. And, um, uh, and uh, typically DAC is seen as just the removal component. But I think, you know, in the in the kind of, um, you know, second generation, we're going to see that, you know, you can actually integrate storage with with the uh, direct air capture component. So that's one of the things that that sets us apart from first gen because it actually comes with integrated storage. Okay. 
Is that necessary? Yeah, is that necessary for it to be second generation? Is it mostly about co-locating removal and storage? Is that the main differentiator between first and second gen? No, no, I, I kind of touched it a little early, but um, um, the um, let's do it now. It's time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess you know. Well, well that air capture, you know, typically it just produces a, a gas of CO two, you know, and then you know you have to couple it with some sort of a storage solution like you know Carfix or. 44.01 or or something like that and uh and um uh, well you know here too you know it's, it's kind of coupled with the storage solution but but basically um i don't want to go like too deep into to the to the kind of stuff that is uh, proprietary because uh you know we haven't filed for ipr yet but i can talk it on a broad level and uh basically you have a you have a uh, you know process and uh you know um, it, it's what we do is similar to you know um, a capture six and, and F carbon and, and a lot of companies that build on a, a chloroalkali, uh, you know, process and splitting salt effectively. Um, but this is not a, a, a not an open cycle process in the sense that we're not constantly taking in new salt and you know splitting that and then you know let's say dump the alkaline component into the ocean or or you know in the desert somewhere or and then the acid you know has to be neutralized somehow and um, or disposed of. So, so this is basically we're, um, you know, basically killing two birds with one stone, and uh, and the same process, uh, you know, that is, uh, you know, used to capture the the, the, car the carbon dioxide from the air is used to dissolve magnesium out of rock, you know, that is then combined, you know, in this in this process, and 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 the product is is a um, oh, oh. can't really see that, but it's it's a crystalline magnesium carbonate. And um, and the, the difference about this is that the reaction is instantaneous, so it happens, you know, at the plant immediately, and it's it's you know very easy to verify and and um, record and also trace trace the material. Plus, you know, I think the business model is a little uh, more flexible in the sense that uh, we're not just uh, because the plant is actually putting out a physical product. So for a million ton plant uh, per annum say for our for the sake of argument uh, you, you put about two million tons of uh, magnesium carbonate a year which of half of the mass is, is carbon dioxide so okay. so um, you know you have a kind of a more diverse diversified business model you're not just uh, dependent on selling cdr to the you know to the quite few buyers that are actually in the game at the moment um, like that we all know like uh, shopify and, and microsoft and, and stripe or, or frontier and um, so let's do this. Wait, let me interrupt. Let's do a mental, like a verbal whiteboard. So if I was, if I was going to be taught like what DAC is, what its history has been and where it's going. So like the DAC, the first column on the left here of our, of our verbal whiteboard would be direct air capture. They're the machines we've all seen, right? We've all seen pictures of these turbine-like machines that are sucking in air. We know they're going through some sort of, then it's touching on a sorbent. And then it's being stored, I assume, temporarily at most facilities prior to a more permanent storage, which would be injection underground, um, or perhaps it's being utilized, so it's going into materials. Um, so am I correct in thinking that's kind of the DAC as we all know it, like the original DAC is saying, we're going to suck it out with these turbines, we're going to store it, and then we're going to inject it or use it. And so that DAC, in my mind, is still just getting off the ground. Would you say that's that's correct. Like we're seeing, you know, obviously Climeworks is the OG in the industry. Um, and now we have carbon capture with their new project Bison coming out. Um, 
So is that all kind of the, the DAC as we know it? And then what would separate second generation DAC? Is it this coupling? Is it the, the idea of storing on site? Illustrate that a little bit for us. Well, yeah, um, all of those things. I, I'm trying to hold them all in my head. Um, but the, um, yeah, I guess, you know, um, like I, I'm not going go into names or specific processes, but but let, let's say when you talk about sorbent, for example, and the sorbent is a big, big thing of the whole whole equation because, you know, um, you know, you might have to make the sorbent, you know, synthetically, and it might take a lot of energy and it might actually have, uh, let's say, bioavailable nitrogen in it. And if you were to deploy something like that at a gigaton scale, then you would inevitably leach a massive amount of nitrogen into the environment, for example, um, which is already a big problem because of eutrophication and, and then amine-based sorbents, for example, they are, you, you have to make them synthetically and they are one of the most energy intensive, intensive uh, chemicals out there today. So I, I think, you know, um, alkaline and earth alkaline metals clearly are, are, you know, an interesting option there. But at the same time, being a, what I like to call myself a seasoned process engineer, or you know, having been involved there for a long time, um, I wouldn't typically want to have a process with, uh, let's say, if I can avoid it, you know, to have too much mater solid material handling, for example, because solid material handling is something that a, is expensive, requires a lot of investment, takes a lot of hardware, um, and uh, it's it's prone to failure. It's typically, you know, if you look at a biomass plant, for example, then then the materials handling is typically where you where you get the hiccups. And okay. um, so so there are a lot of things you, you can do better. Um, you know, I would like to say that this process that we're doing doesn't have a single moving part. I mean, let alone the, the turbine or the propeller at the top top of the structure. And and of course, oh. here, you know, when you're talking about something like this, uh, you have two things, you have the core process, and then you have the, the concept that you build around that that core process and how you couple it, you know, with the environment, for example. And uh, I think, you know, one of the challenges with first gen diary hair capture and, it, you know, it's, it, you know, yeah, challenges uh, is that uh, it's, it's consuming a lot of resources. It takes a lot of energy, electricity, uh, thermal energy. It takes a lot of water uh, and, and chemicals. So, uh, and it I mean, doesn't. That is, that is the strike against DAC that people always bring up. I yeah, think that's that, the most that, common that, argument against DAC yeah, is it's energy yeah. intensive. And so, it's very, it's very talk to us in, in, in terms of scale. So, like, if that's like the kind of typical scale of energy consumption, what are you looking at for second gen in terms of energy? Come, like, just compare and it doesn't have to be an exact, you know, wattage, but in terms of scale. Well, we do some things, you know, we recycle the energy internally in this process. So, you know, like, you know, but, but it's still, it, it does take a lot of energy. I would say it takes, uh, depending on how much energy you recycle uh, internally, some of the hydrogen that the, the, the uh, electrolyzers put out, um, you would be looking at 13 to 2200 kilowatt hours per ton uh, of CO2 removed, but that does include the storage uh, component. So, you know, you save a lot in the, you know, compressing and, uh, you know, pipe, pipelines and or, you know, ships or or cooling, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you do down the line or injection, you might have to inject it, you know, against a substantially high pressure, you know, much higher than the, the CO2 pressure itself. But um, what I wanted to say, you know, the other thing that sets apart uh, and is it's been kind of used as a as a uh, club against um, our DAC is is that it's kind of you know doesn't isn't really tangible or something that people can can see and, and and you know it doesn't really offer anything 
to the local community. Let's say that if you build one of these massive plants and you're gonna pretty much gonna have them in, in tens of thousands of, of cities or, or villages or, or, or the countryside. So there, there should be something tangible uh, and a benefit that, you know, you know that the, the, the local population or the society gets from that. And I think, um, you know, that can have co-benefits. And if you look at look at our process, for example, um, water is one thing. Uh, instead of using water, we're actually condensing a lot of water because we control the uh, relative humidity and temperature and the temperature differences between, you know, different flows and the air coming in. So then instead of drying up, we're actually condensing a lot of water. But the source of that water is seawater, and we're evaporating some of that and, and then yeah. condensing it back. So there's a small river coming out of that plant. And actually, you know, again, if you look at the uh, million tons per annum plant, that would be about 1,600 uh, tons or cubic meters of water every hour coming out of that plant. So it, it's actually Whoa. it's a small stream that you can row in a boat, you know, basically. It's, yeah. it's a... And that so, would be salt water desalinized and then leaving the facility in a stream of fresh water that could then be available for use. Yeah, yeah, it's distilled water that has been evaporated from seawater and then condensed in, in the contactor. You know, once again, this is a direct air capture plant, so it does have a contactor where you bring the sorbent into contact with the air. But the air that reaches the contactor is very humid and the contactor is, is cooled, it's ice cold. So you know, all that humidity condenses into the, in, in the, in the contactor. And you're actually able to harvest that as, as you know, for, for drinking or, or irrigation. And the other thing, you know, when I'm talking about the concept that we're building around the actual technology is, um, you know, obviously solar solar is the, is the kind of most scalable form of energy and, and the kind of large scale plants are based on solar. The initially, you can do it anywhere where you have low carbon electricity and there's not a shortage of it. Like in Finland, right today we have negatively priced energy, which is nice, and it's been negatively priced for for a couple of days now, so that's very nice. But um, even during daytime hours, it's negatively priced. Yeah, in the last few days it has been so, which is wow. you know nice because I I paid a thousand uh, you know uh, per kilowatt hour something like that per megawatt hour last last winter and and last spring a year ago it was just just crazy you know so wow. so um. Yeah, what I was going to say is that the other other thing is this magnesium carbonate. So if you're in the desert, let's say somewhere, and these plants will, will be built in the desert, so there's not a lot of market nearby, necessarily big cities where you want to haul this kind of cheap bulk product. So the magnesium carbonate is actually, you know, when you take it out, it's, it's like little rocks, and you can you can make pellets out of it, for example. Or will you, you, make... will you clink it for us? I heard on on LinkedIn yeah. your post, you clinking yeah. so that our, our listeners can hear. Yeah, it does make. It has a satisfying sound. It does have this kind of a glass-like sound, or 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 sound like a ceramic. Now my my laptop is all all covered with the carbonate. <laughs> I, didn't hear, I didn't even hear anything, so you just got it dirty for no reason. Yeah, sorry. I'll I'll uh, I'll I'll record it for you, and I'll, well, I'll, I'll add it in post. Yeah, <laughs> like but, a Himalayan yeah. singing singing bowl here for us. Yeah. Um. Actually, yeah. It's once it's once it's like really crystallized. It's it 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 is like you know kind of a solid. You know structure and and you know you that's when it starts to have that sound like that it's it's interesting talk to me about yeah. building with it not to get ahead but so we have yeah. we're talking about co-benefits second gen dac we have the potential of listen up californians where water is scarce and salt water is abundant we have the potential of you know having this stream of fresh water coming out of the plant um you mentioned on your website that this is something that um 
you can build with. So this is a material that could be used as a, as a building additive. Yeah, you can press it into bricks as it is, and, and it doesn't need a binder. And it has a hardness that's comparable to limestone. So on a, on a mass scale, it's three to four. So it's uh, limestone is, a, you know, if you visit European cities, then and most of the old cities are built out of limestone. It's a very good um, material. I mean, it's easy to carve and, and cut and, you know, size, but this is different. You know, you have the same hardness. It's it's bright white, you know, so if you if you build something out of that in a high, you know, in a desert area, then, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, good thermally because it reflects a lot of the, the solar energy back. And yeah, you can use it in a lot of ways. You can use it to build houses or roads and um, or coral reefs. You know, you don't just want to dump it in the ocean. You want to make bricks out of it and then then dump a pile of bricks on which the corals can can, you know, start building on. So but it's the question of whether there's a market or not. And it's it's a cheap bulk product. And I have to go back a little bit because I was talking about the more diverse business model, you know, that, that we have. And and, you know, instead of selling just the, just the uh, cork or the CO2 removal certificate uh, to to the uh, software companies and, and uh, Internet uh, you know, companies. Um, and, and others, uh, we we wouldn't. Um, um, so we're actually this is more diverse. You can actually sell it as carbon negative. Like I used to be in biochar at Carbofex. And, you know, when we were selling biochar, typically you would sell the cork separately from the physical product. And, and then you would tell the buyer of the carbon that they cannot make any carbon negativity claims or, or you know, that this is, you know, reduces. There's using no carbon. double counting, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but we had some clients that wanted to, you know, to kind of buy the buy the carbon negative product so that we would staple the certificates into the backs, you know, figuratively speaking. And magnesium carbonate is similar that sort of thing it, it doesn't you know quite have is it is not as intense as as biochar you know with uh, three you know kilograms per kilogram of, of co2 equivalent uh, i mean one kilogram of biochar had three kilograms of co2 equivalent so magnesium carbonate only has about 53 percent of, of uh, co2 but it's okay. it's carbon negative and and you know we don't need to sell the cork we can just sell it as a carbon negative filler or a carbon negative uh, you know construction material Fillers are, are used in a lot of different industrial products and, and limestone is typically, you know, and silica and, and carbon black and, and things like that are, are, you know, typically fillers. So, so the point is that, you know, uh, companies are able to make carbon negative or carbon neutral products, you know, once they kind of recycle as much as possible and all, all their energy is renewable, but there's still a little bit of carbon uh, footprint left. The only thing you can do is you, you can use a carbon negative component to kind of uh, you know offset the, the carbon footprint, and we can we can do that. So it's not just the CDR market; it's also the industrial product market and 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 the kind of filler use. So it's more. I have lots of questions, but Ross, it looks like you want to get one in. I also just want to tell you to stay in your lane. If DAC starts having co-benefits, what's going to happen to everyone else, man? Can you just can you just back off and just? That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, how could you make DAC unstoppable? Give it co-benefits. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it has to be, and for for people to buy into it, and you know, uh, you know, not have the not in my backyard attitude, then it's got to have you know some something good, and and you know this concept. Um, you know, it's solar powered. So around the plant, which is by the sea on the desert, you're going to have a big array of solar panels, probably like 500 hectares of them, you know, several hundreds of acres. 
thousand acres at least at least so um, you're gonna actually gonna be able to grow grow food and stuff under under the panels because it just provides a little bit of shade. These are sodium telluride panels, so they're basically thin film, and most of the light gets through. So instead of you know making the the land you know useless, you actually you know make it arable in a way. And then you know the last thing is that you know you're gonna build these plants carbon negative from from scratch. So uh, once again, you know, by using carbon negative materials like biochar. And if we go into the DAC side, you know, the contactor, once again, uh, you know, when, you, when you're moving massive amounts of air, you want to have passive, uh, you know, systems or, or, you know, low velocities and laminar, laminar flows, which means that, you know, there's, there's no turbulence. So, so in effect, you know, you want to have an easy breathing system, you know, like, it's like sucking when you're trying to breathe through a straw, you know, you're, you're you're changing the same amount of air, but you're doing a lot of work because, you know, there's a small opening. So you have to make all the passages big so that, you know, the flow, flow can, um, you know, flow e uh, easily. And, and um, that means that they're going to be big. Um, you know, that's the downside of it. So these structures are going to be huge. And just to put it into perspective, a one megaton plant is going to have a diameter of 630 meters and the circumference of two kilometers. And, you know, the contactor, uh, you know, kind of a frontal area where the air flows into the contactor, the, 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 the dimensions are going to be two kilometers by one, uh, 10 meters. So it's a, it's a massive structure and it, you know, you're going to have plates on which your contact solution, your sorbent is flowing. And then the air is, is flowing between those plates and, and you're hoping that it's going to react with the, with your sorbent. So, you know, these, these are mega structures and it means that there's going to be about 400,000 tons of material, recycled plastic and, and biochar needed, you know, to make those contactor plates. But the good thing is that you're already carbon negative when you start and you can probably sell some, some, you know, certificates already when you're, when you're building it. So, so, uh, you know, once again, you got it all figured out. I thought the future of direct air capture was going to be modular. This is the future that somehow I had internalized at some point. And the fact that there's going to be even more colossal structures built than previously is potentially unexpected to the listeners as well as to myself. Is that is that still on the table or does just the economy of scale work way better than the modular approach? approach? I know there's intersections between these two paradigms, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, I think it's going to be modular, but it's still going to be huge. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Huge okay. and lots of them, in other words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, here too, I'm thinking about what is the kind of trajectory or how do we go from, you know, being in a lab and making a, you know, a few handfuls of, of that product, you know, to, to making, you know, 2 million tons of it a year. And, and it goes up, you know, in steps. First, you're doing something that does a kilogram an hour, then it's a ton per day. And then you're probably looking at 2,000 uh, tons a year. And then you go to a module, which might be like 10,000 tons a year. And then you prove out the module. And then if that module is already big enough and, you know, you're you're kind of reaping some of the economies of scale with that, then, you know, you can just stack them or, or you know, uh, yeah, stack them. And, uh, you know, I'm, until you get I'm your... I'm curious because this does sound, you know, when you when you frame it that way, kind of in this year by year process, it sounds achievable. But you know, when you describe this massive facility where we're going to have solar panels and crops growing under them and outflows of fresh water, it sounds very utopian. 
But what are what are the big hurdles you're already thinking they're going to come up against? Is it just policy based? Is it just acceptance and understanding of the process? What are the big hurdles? Um, well, I try to work around all the hurdles, like you know, as as far as possible. And you know, one of one of them getting around is like you know the storage component, and you know, or let's say that if you have a hydrochloric acid disposal problem, then then one of the hurdles is like, okay, well. Like you're talking about disposing waste, and waste sounds bad to people, and that that normally gets them up on the barricades, and and you know, so it's better if you can make a product of some sort, and, and nobody has anything about against making products, especially if they're carbon negative and and uh, you know sustainable and all that. So, sorry, I almost lost my train of thought there. That's okay. So you're talking about building around the hurdles and making yeah. it's yeah. something that people do want. Um, it sounds so geographically, like there's going to be a big plot of land here. And what do you think would be, I mean, so I used to work in major utility developments for Caltrans, for PG&E, and a lot of these, you know, facilities we would build take a lot of land. And I was always out there doing the environmental component, right? And so if you want to build a new transmission line or whatnot, you're taking up new space. And on the one hand, you're like, oh, this is in the Southern California desert. There's nothing there. Obviously we know that not to be entirely the case. There's, there's quite a bit there. And so what, what would the impact be of doing this truly at scale? Are there, are there enough sufficient siting locations within desert ecosystems that also are, I assume they have to be somewhat adjacent to the actual sea so that they can have not too far of transmission of saltwater. Am I incorrect in assuming that? Well, uh, probably in most cases, you do have rock salt uh, formations and, and that sort of thing, salt domes, if it were too. So, so you could be tapping into those. But then again, if you want to do ocean alkalinity enhancement, then, then yeah, you'd have to be by the sea, uh, you know, one way or Wait another. a minute, you'd be doing DAC and you'd have outflows of fresh water and you'd be doing ocean alkalinity enhancement? No, I, I mean, sorry, I, I just... <laughs> If you ask that, you know, wouldn't wouldn't one if they use use salt that need to proximity to the ocean, but we don't need proximity to the ocean because of the salt because we don't it's a closed loop, so we're using the same salt over and over again, and we're breaking it down and then you know starting all over again. But but the um, and yeah, if you're in the desert and you're solar powered, then you need to be by the sea uh, because of the cooling and and the fresh water, uh, you know. Uh, the water management or the the water balance, but if you're in a cooler climate, then then um, basically what you really need is a cooling source, and and you need to be able to create a large enough temperature difference in in your system so that you actually get condensation. So so and it doesn't always have to be a water producing system. It, it could be as long as it doesn't dry up. But but you know making one of these plants acceptable, you know you kind of come got to have the uh, social benefits or the the benefits for the local local people and. And um, yeah, I think you know it, it sounds utopian, uh, but I prefer utopian over dystopian. And and uh, you know, I think I just see a lot of things you know come together, and uh, we just have to put the first one together. So I think people will be inspired, and and they they want to replicate that. And going to scale, you know, I think it's easier. You know, in this case, you only need a thousand plants, you know, that are six hundred thirty meters in diameter, plus the solar arrays, you know, around that. So it's not, you know, space or land that is is constricting the thing. Um, I think it's more more like, you know, when you have 
more projects like with biochar, you would have to build 100,000 plants probably to reach the gigaton capacity. So how are you going to finance all of those and, and the kind of time and, and energy that goes into those projects, just developing those projects is, is enormous. So I think a million tons in, you know, 10 years down the line is going to be your module. And then, then you know, some, some places you might see, you know, several million tons in, in a plant if you have a good location. And there, there's plenty of coastal deserts in the world and where, where the land is cheap, there's very little people. If there are people, then they, they are kind of stricken by drought and climate change and they need, you know, a break basically. So, so this, uh, you know, plant could offer one. Seems like we've talked about this in a previous show, but it seems like um, the Arabian Peninsula is probably a prime candidate for something like this. There's water. They're going to lose out on oil and gas pretty soon, or at some point they will. This might be one of those replacement industries that could could be quite beneficial. Maybe turn oh, someone yeah. who might otherwise dig their heels into an ally of the future of carbon removal. Yeah, there, there's like, you know, in South America, there's Atacama. And then uh, you have the Namibian coastal desert. You have, you know, all the uh, Algeria and Morocco is, is really dry uh, and the Mediterranean is really dry all over uh, and um, Australia, India and uh, Arabian Peninsula in particular is, uh, you know, enormous solar potential. And you've seen some we've seen some really cheap uh, solar power come from that region. You know, it's it's like some of the contracts are 0.9 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, and for, for new, new large-scale solar. Have you been following the news about fusion that's come out in the last month or so? I've been keeping an active eye on fusion for, for 20 years, and I'm, I'm you know... All <laughs> Is it now of... the time, though? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I'd love it. You know, just bring it, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put it to use. And I, I doubt it's going to be cheap initially, mm. uh, you know, but, um, but yeah, I welcome it. You know, I'm... I, I'd love to see fusion and I, I would do fusion. I'd be in fusion myself if I, you know, wasn't doing this. How would fusion change the location of DAC 2.0 or would it impact it at all? Well, it just means that you don't, you're not kind of tied to high solar potential uh, areas. So you could basically build it anywhere in the, in the, in a cooler, uh, darker uh, climates, like, you know, in the Nordics and, uh, you know. What's the footprint? Just curiously, I'm as somebody who hasn't been following the fusion discussion. What's uh, the footprint of fusion power plants? Yeah, I think they're comparable to to fission plants at this point. Uh, I mean, the, um, but yeah, um, I, I have I know of a few different you know new fusion processes, but but you know I'm not going to be able to comment on on the you know what but but yeah, I think one of the arguments for nuclear is that you know it's it's um, you know takes it has a small footprint we're gonna have to do a show on this at some point Shiv, there's just too much stuff happening and i've seen the i'm already seeing the gears turning both inside at nori i've seen it elsewhere too of linking up you know high energy intensity carbon removal that is currently not lca worthy but if it's abundant and cheap clean energy, like with fusion, then maybe that changes the equation on some of these things. Um, maybe. Or maybe yeah, it's it's cur curve it and we just use it all up doing silly things. That's also possible. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've been playing with those thoughts for a long time. Then what if we had, you know, abundant, cheap 
clean energy you know that you wouldn't have to feel bad about using and you could just you know it wouldn't be a, a limitation you know then i love having someone who's at the top of their field like this having them on and then ask them the equivalent of like being stoned on your freshman dorm couch being like <laughs> what if abundant energy costs nothing we we <laughs> save the world like yeah. i yeah. love being that guy slash hate it but it's apparently what i did Siobhan, yeah no it's, there's nothing, nothing wrong with you know speculating and playing playing with thoughts you know sometimes you know well, you know you might see things no i agree i think it's good to to kind of have your brain be a rubber band that goes out into that expansive potential reality as long as you know it comes back as like okay well now that i that i've played with that idea what's the reality of it you know um but i do think that you know in general in climate solutions and carbon removal specifically i like the idea of of playing with what's possible. I think, you know, Tito Jankowski of Air Miners talks about that a lot about like, just imagine what could be possible. And I think that is a positive exercise. Um, just just playing in general, I think can be kind of help. Maybe I'm, this is self-aggrandizing because we like play a lot in the Nori Meme Lab and we play, we bring humor and we bring kind of some delight into the, into the industry. And so maybe this is self-aggrandizing, but I do think there's a role for bringing in kind of this imagining of what it could be and, and, and poking fun at ourselves. Cause I think when we poke fun at ourselves, we, we can sometimes find the true holes in, in our ideas, you know? I think engineers typically, they are kind of shy, you know, when it comes to being very creative or, you know, imagining things, they don't, you know, typically they're not the, you know, imagination, uh, you know, people, they, they, you know, hard math and hard physics and, and, you know, that sort of stuff. And, I, you know, personally, I think of myself more as a, well, kind of an artist. I, I do play the guitar, I'm not, but, but you know, not, not so much an engineer because I, I really need to be inspired and I need, need to be in the right kind of mood and, and mode, you know, to be able to do something and give my, give my best. And I have a lot of engineering friends that, you know, they just crunch, you know, crunch away. And, you know, there's, there's like, they can go from one task to the next one and with, you know, one minute orientation period in between. And I'm like, you know. Well, it's like, could you be farther from my disposition? Probably not. I think we've talked about this on the podcast, though, is I often like going into brainstorming meetings or pitch meetings with the worst idea possible and being the person to throw out the crappiest idea, because then that loosens up other people to throw out the like half-baked idea or quarter-baked idea. And oftentimes the best stuff comes out of someone who's like, this is terrible, but what about this? And you're like, that plus this, boom, we just made something that was great out of nothing because people felt comfortable sharing an idea that was not really that polished. So yeah, I think creativity can do a lot. And then again, I'm also biased because I want job <laughs> security, but it's true, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a risk of, you know, getting, you know, labeled as the village nutter, you know, uh, more or less, but, but I, Wait. you know, I don't shun that, you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, if there's a, you know, I like to play with thoughts, you know, and uh, it's, 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 you know, easy to amuse yourself and, and your friends, you know, go down these imaginary, imaginary paths. Do you have anything like that right now? Something that is really not ready for prime time, but is something that you're thinking a lot about? Um, carbon removal related or, or, you know, <laughs> I, don't need, I don't think I need to put that parameter on it. Why don't you just, what do you, what do you, what do you want to share? You clearly have something ready. <laughs> Oh, 
my bees did really well last winter and uh, the honey honey harvest is looking very good. Uh, and um, I'm gonna get my cows back in a little bit. You know, they've been away for the winter because I was in California four months. And um, so it's been, you know, a few months away from them now and I, I love them dearly. So it's gonna be nice to, to, to get them back. You're, and, uh, you're a farmer too? On top, you do all these things and then you also farm? Well, farming is a you know a source of creativity and and kind of recreation and uh, you know so it's it's a kind of a you know you got to have a, a physical exercise and you got to have you know uh, you know I think I do shooting too uh, I'm not a gun enthusiast but I do it for a reason because I get a kind of a feeling of success and uh, achievement you know because in my line of work sometimes you have to work for ten to twenty years before you actually get anywhere and you know look at me. Carbon removal is a thing now, but it wasn't a thing 20 years ago. And uh, so, you know, sometimes, you know, when you when you hit a steel target, you hear a nice cling back. And and my, my brain is kind of wired, you know, because I used to play, you know, I was uh, in the in the 80s and uh, you know, within a, you know, a lot of video games. So it caused my brain to be wired so that I need that, you know, fairly <laughs> rapid feedback. And uh, that gives me a, I, I figured out why, why does this feel so good? And, and uh, you know, because it's, it's like playing playing a game, instant feedback and instant gratification. So farming too, you know, you get um, you get to see things and you kind of connect to the rhythm of the nature and uh, you know, it's it's nice. And, and then you get feelings of success and you kind of connect and, and it's also good for, for kind of, you know, quieting down and cooling off a little bit sometimes too. Is that how you got into biochar? Did, did farming? go to biochar, did biochar lead you to farming? Tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you went from somewhere there's farming in there, but then there was the success with Carbofex and then why you chose to quit biochar basically and pivot into DAC. A lot of questions. Uh, I was in, I wasn't the first time I got involved with uh, charcoal was in 1996 or even a few years before. That's when I built, uh, we were the one of the largest producers of charcoal in Finland that year when I was in high school in 1990. 1996, yeah. In 1998, I joined the joined the army, so I was out of that for for some time. But then I came back and um, I started working on gasification uh, from from um, you know better part of 2000s, from 2001 till 2000, or yeah, even on from 99 to 2009, more or less. And then I got into pyrolysis, and uh, we came up with the idea of biocoal, which is a, a kind of an established term today, but it was our trademark back then and it, you know the idea was that you know you take biomass and you convert it into kind of a drop-in fuel for coal-fired power plants and uh, you know that way you know allow to reduce emissions but uh, that was too windy and and uh, there was the financial crisis and you know uh, it was heavily kind of involved with all these energy schemes which you know you don't really want to be you want to be an arm's length from you know if you, you want to you know build something and um so um, uh, we already knew how to build, make biochar then. And we had the same machine we used at Carbofex we, we built in 2009. And uh, we, ever since the thought process, like what are we gonna do with biochar so that we could make money or have a business around it? What's the business model gonna look like? And in, in 2015, 2016, we, you know, I had some ideas that were refined and I saw a few few openings like growing media. Uh, you know, we're gonna go, we're gonna go after perlite and, uh, so then we, we took the old machine and, and, you know, rigged it up again and it kind of, you know, refurbished it a little bit. And then we, we started Carbofex and, and that was 2016. And um, 
we did pretty good. You know, we got the we did the uh, you know first mythology uh, for biochar with Puro, and uh, we we brought in a lot of you know biochar companies to Puro at the time. And uh, um, you know, we we were also the market leaders in Sweden and pretty much in Europe in in biochar. And uh, for for a long time, we led the the CDR race, or or led or kind of you know we're we're in the in the top three or top five. Still, four thousand tons, you know, of delivered uh, CDR, you know, today. So what, you just you just got sick of success there. Well, no, actually, you know, it's it's a tragic story. Um, I, I didn't leave voluntarily. Uh, my my uh, founding partner uh, threw me out because we we had um, well, he now owned like half of the company. I I was down to twenty seven or something like that. And and it's a long story. Uh, I, I was going to bring in a couple of uh, uh, climate investors. Um, you know, in the uh, end of 21, but, but there was, you know, a late night deal and, and uh, ultimately those guys were out and, and uh, a few other guys, two other guys were in and five months, six months down the line, I'm, they're asking me, why are we not selling any machines? I'm like, you know, why are you asking me, why are we not selling machines? We're not supposed to sell any machines We're we're developing CDR projects. And, and, you know, that, that is the way to, to scale biochar and, and pyrolysis and, and CDR in particular and uh but they had not bought into that plan you know uh, that we had you know created with the with the investors that i wanted to have and um basically you know it just went downhill from there um you know there was uh, all kinds of and and in the end in the end of last summer we had a you know terrible terrible meeting uh, you know probably the you know we, we didn't meet you know these guys were you know i didn't really even get to know them they came through the the other guy but the um um, in the end, you know, um, they wanted to go all into hardware business. They thought that now is the time to sell hardware. And they thought that since we had this, you know, uh, Russian offensive into Ukraine and uh, the energy crisis, you know, it was it was really like, you know, big, you know, last last summer. So they thought that nobody's going to be interested in the CDR because we've got this crisis. And I was like, well, you know, I don't think so. You know, and, um, and then they wanted to go all in into a huge project, you know, that was uh, that we've been trying to make happen for for two, three years. And, um, and uh, but we didn't really find a way to make it work for everybody. And and uh, the risk would have been on us. And it would have been kind of a open book, cost plus 10 percent and all the risk on us. So I, I saw what my role would have been, you know, for the next two, three years, you know, and um, and uh, I, I couldn't go down that road. So in the end, you know, they they fired me and. Um, that was in the end of um, uh, beginning of August, so it's ten months almost now, okay. and they they really you know didn't think that we were going anywhere, and they didn't think that that you know that that is what we should have been doing, and and uh, I've seen a lot of you know equipment business, and I've seen a lot of projects, and uh, I'm still kind of very very adamant that you know the right way to 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 go is to develop a few projects of your own, and you know maybe then three four years down the line, even two three. Uh, you could you could sell them to third parties too, but it's good to have a couple of you know plants of your own and a solid reference base before you know you possibly run into a difficult client or a difficult project. And these sales projects are often difficult because the clients often you know uh, they don't use the feedstock that they tell you that they're going to use, and then when it doesn't work, they're going to blame you on it, and then you don't get the money, and then you you know end up you know going back and forth and trying to fix something a problem that is not yours. And, uh, you know, I've kind of, you know, burned myself out, you know, in that that kind of business a long time ago. So so my body tells me, you know, don't go don't go there. Isn't 
Isn't yeah. one of the big bottlenecks for biochar still there's not a, a large scale manufacturer of kilns or other devices, right? I've heard people say this. I don't know to what degree it's true, but that is a bottleneck, right? At the moment, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of the equipment suppliers are, are you know, in short supply. I mean, they can't make enough with those machines and there's a long, long lead time, probably could be two years uh, with, with some, some uh, companies. I mean, whatever though, if you weren't, enjoying your work or the relationships weren't right or it's just not uh, a vertical you're interested in serving then i think you're probably better off just moving on and finding something that you are passionate about and whenever whenever you sell what you're working on now and become fabulously wealthy and then you move on to fusion and then you solve that and then what's next for you sampo seems like uh, the world is your oyster right now god are we just we're just building him up we've never been so complimentary in the show ever well, I I also just appreciate, that. I appreciate your candor because yes. I feel like within, I feel like within, you know, here we are on a podcast and I appreciate your candor because I think within CDR and climate in general, we don't talk enough, enough about the conflicts that can arise within the startup ecosystem. And I think it is a very supportive sector, like much more than other startups, other founders, yeah. there's a lot of support, but at the same time, you know, I'm part of various different groups where we meet weekly to talk with founders and and the struggles and the conflicts that arise and the people want to go in different directions. And I just think we don't acknowledge that enough as a community. And, and so it's great to just hear you speak frankly about your challenges and, and how you're recovering from them. Yeah. And I've had to take a little breather after that, because obviously, you know, it was a, it was a huge, I put everything, you know, pretty much um, in, on the line and um, six years, you know, and a lot of my kids grew up in that time. And uh, uh, also, you know, you know, it took financial sacrifices too, you know, initially. So, so you know, but but yeah, you know, it's a it's an old rule of thumb. Uh, you know, you gotta you know do what you you know uh, like and uh, you know um, what you know what you're good at. And uh, you know, if if you know people don't appreciate your talent, then you take your talent elsewhere and you know sell it to sell it to somebody else or, or you know make your own fortune and well that's what i've pretty much been doing i've been an entrepreneur all my life and and uh, you know i have no wonder out. you need to tend to your bees and your cows i feel like that would be yeah. the calming the calming outlet for her high stress climate tech work i'm also a you know devoted yogi and uh, i do meditate two hours a day and i'm a vegan vegan i've been on a vegetarian diet diet since uh 1998 and you know, I, oh, I'm I gonna I'm gonna call you out then for your kill two birds with one stone comment because I learned from my I'm a lifelong vegetarian and my mother would always say no no Siobhan you kill you feed two birds with one scone <laughs> which like has that. to be which has to be the cheesiest most deplorable turn of phrase um, <laughs> for you know defying animal cruelty but I remember it to this day so whenever when someone says that I, in my head I think feed two birds with one scone yeah i normally don't use you know violent metaphors or, or you know things like that but it's it's you know just uh yeah what i had you know at the moment yeah. but yeah oh go ahead sorry no no i'm i was just uh you know i was just violent. using it I was just trying to figure out if it was from the King James Bible or from Shakespeare. That's always the game when there's a weird old idiom. I'm like, which of these two is it from? It's one of yeah, the two. Yeah, Shakespeare is pretty much, you know, <laughs> everywhere. And uh, I was surprised myself once. Oh, uh, yeah. If you if you read the King James, like the Gospels, and you read a Hamlet, you're like, cool, this is like 75 of the most commonly used idioms that are still in use. <laughs> yeah. 
all condensed. Um, yeah, he had to, you know, he was good with the word and good with the good with the pen, you know, no doubt. Okay, now, now this is this is outside of the, the the meaning of this podcast. I'm doing it now. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm a kind of collector of phrases, you know, uh, and my friends were, you know, coming up after me some at some point because I was just, you know, using a a metaphor, you know, after a metaphor, a phrase after a phrase, and it gets ir irritating after after a little while, you know, because you're just, you know, every time you open your mouth, there's this. Speaking in metaphors, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, do you? I mean, while he's looking for this, um, how do you fit two hours a day of meditation in? Can I ask? Is that is that CDR adjacent? Should we all be doing two hours of meditation as we build our CDR solutions? Well, my guru tells me that businessmen should do three hours of meditation a day because you know the the mind mind is racing, and you should do a, a one hour in, at midday or you know early afternoon as well, just to you know keep your keep the you know keep the reins. But uh, you do it early in the morning, you do it late in the evening. And, um, you know, the Buddha said that, you know, the, the best time to practice your mind is between four and seven in the morning. So, you know, ideally do it then, uh, or or then uh, around 12 o'clock midnight is also good, unless if you need to be in bed, you can do it earlier. But, wow, uh, I'm, not, I'm not kidding when I said I was like proud when I got up to 15 minutes. So you're really putting me to shame here. No, I'm not shaming anybody. You know, the thing is that I was, I had a hard time in sitting five minutes initially and I, I, I was breaking sweat, you know, just the, as soon as the, the thought of sitting down or doing, you know, as, asanas or anything like that, you know, it just, you know, immediately I started sweating and it, I don't know how it created that kind of reaction in my, in my body, but, you know, first you do five minutes, you do 10 minutes and, and you little by little you grow into it. And after 20 years, you can't eat or sleep if you don't do meditation. So Quite often, you know, if I'm late in the morning, it's because I meditated too long. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's just hard to hard to let go sometimes. I was mostly just going to ask: Are you, with all of your other ridiculous experiences here and, and achievements, are you also a Simo Haya? Um, well, I was the best uh, shot shooter in my regiment. I still have a like a golden golden medal, but that's that's nothing. I mean, fin Finnish are typically pretty good, pretty handy with rifles, and uh, most of the uh, males have um, you know gone to the military and served served some time, and and uh, everybody knows how to handle handle guns. But I I actually I'm a competitive shooter. I do cowboy action shooting, hmm. so um, it's uh, kind of a I've got a there, there are so many layers. I feel like we're we're peeling back the mineralized carbon layers yeah. and finding out more. You, you probably yeah, don't I know this my... person, Siobhan, but he's like the most celebrated sniper of all time. But in the the winter war against the Soviets uh during World War II, it was like I'm just looking at Wikipedia, it's like five hundred. Yeah, that was a confirmed, confirmed count, but but you know, the unconfirmed this could be double, you know. That, yeah. Uh, so, uh, and uh, yeah, he always said that. Well, I just did the job that I that was given to me as good as I could, and you know, you know, it's it's. I mean, matter yeah. of fact, Nordic <laughs> nature. I have to show you this. Uh, I've got a, a little uh, dent in my finger because uh, I, I did so much shotgunning uh, last Sunday, and uh, I was shooting at a barrel, and uh, the. The, the task was to kind of flip it over, you know, with the shotgun so that you shoot it once, it kind of go a little bit and then you have to shoot it again quickly so that it would, would top over. And I had to do it a lot of times, but that it was a kind of, kind of a stage, you know, in the cowboy a, action. Some cowboy action right there. 
Yeah, yeah. And I have two cows, so I can actually call myself a cowboy. <laughs> a true cowboy. <laughs> Too bad I don't have my 10-gallon uh, cowboy hat, you know, just, you know, within reach. It's, it's a house right now. I was, I was, you know. It's too bad. You could be friends with, with Julio Friedman, the Wrangler. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I love Julio. He's, he always, you know, throws a great show. I, I commented. I, I met him in um, San Jose um, last winter in, at The Verge. I, I like, you know, he's got a, you know, stage charisma. You know? But he knows what he's talking about, you know, too. You, know, you have to respect that. He's the only person I know who has like a, a dedicated carbon removal persona in that kind of way. Uh, I love it. Just, I'm, I am the carbon wrangler and that's, that is who I am. And what are you, what is this you're showing? Is he, it's the CO2 going down. Oh, <laughs> it's being wrangled as we speak. Yeah. yeah. That's when, I, when I'm on the phone, that's, that's what you can see, you know, that's the CO2 is, <laughs> you know. Nice. I don't know that this idiom origin story is really that interesting. Sadly, it is not from Shakespeare or King James. Or the King James. Oh, look at you, Ross. I We're going to have to cut this to save face. <laughs> that's that's always my heuristic, though, if I have to guess. I'm just like, boom, it's just pretty good. Carbon Wrangler is pretty good. You know, you got to, you know, take the bull by the horn. And that's the, you know, proverbial, proverbial bull, I guess. I was trying to make make it sound Shakespearean. All I came up with, "Hast thou wrangled thine carbon?" But I was like, "That's stupid." <laughs> Cut. <laughs> Show's done. Signed away. I'm waiting for the next waiting for the next removal meme, and uh, you know, see. We got some good ones. We'll have to make uh, one for. We'll have to make one for this show. I had some ideas that lit in my brain during this, so I'll make some and tag you. <laughs> we got to do one on like the co-benefits of DAC and make fun of that. Yeah. Yeah. Me uh, get uh, you know paddling my canoe down the proverbial stream coming out of my deck plant and you know going down to the to the village you know to the farm you know what kind of budgets do you think we're working with over here (laughs) 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 what do you think we do (laughs) we take a crappy image that's already been used and we stick a sick text on it (laughs) no no that's that works you know (laughs) keep doing it i love it you know i I laugh out loud sometimes you know when i see the car rule means Sometimes I, get I, I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm glad because sometimes we get notes too that are well people will say like well these are really quite niche to carbon removal and they're like well yeah there's plenty of more generic environmental memes pages out there they don't need more of those but carbon removal as a community we need those yeah <laughs> I, I need those and you know it's, you? it's like you, you, sometimes you know i think you know really like when you when you live and breathe you know that that uh, you know trade then you know a lot of those things are so so real to you and uh, and you know sometimes it just really hits hits you know the spot and uh, like i said i i laugh out loud sometimes and i i, I applaud you you know this oh thank you we're gonna keep you in <laughs> mind you're like our you're like this like a, become a customer discovery call all of a second and now we need to all of a sudden here <laughs> figure out how to duplicate this effect I'm glad uh, to be able to be complimentary, you know. <laughs> Thank you. Happy, it's, happy. It's, it's making you laugh. I think that's an important thing to do. Well, oh, yeah. wrap. Yeah, we, we good. Yeah, let's wrap it up. I think we're good. I think we went all the way from DAC to farming to cowboy shooting. So Julio makes an appearance. That's always fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll take, you know, I'll challenge Julio, you know, to a cowboy shooting match uh, anytime. <laughs> if he's up for it, you know. Okay. I think that's beyond the remit of his persona. I don't. I don't know that there's a lot of target shooting, <laughs> obscure target shooting competitions in his uh, daily. But uh, no, but that's how we dress. 
that's how we dress when we go to the you know cowboy action you know well i should hope so i should hope so Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.